You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, so if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, we actually finished this whole conversation that Paul is having with the church in Corinth. And it all started with a, a single question that Corinth asked Paul. And the question was, what do we do with meat sacrificed to idols? There's um, temples that, were, that, were, that would serve meat that were sacrificed to idols. And we had all these feasts inside the temples. And the, the meat sold in the meat markets, most of that meat was sacrificed to, to idols. And what do we do with the meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul uses three chapters. Obviously, the Bible wasn't written in chapters. We gave chapters to the Bible later. But Paul uses, for our standard of measure, three chapters to answer this question about meat sacrificed to idols. And so we read its conclusion here in verse 14 through chapter 11, verse 1, and then I'll pray. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brother, my, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we, are, we all share the one loaf. What Paul is saying is that when we go to the table communion, we are unified together as a body of Christ, but, and we are also unified in participation with Christ's body. So there's this mysterious oneness that happens in the church and with Christ during communion. That's a big deal. And Paul, even to prove his point further, says, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? There was a text in Deuteronomy that says when you eat... The, the sacrifice, eat it in the presence of God. There was a, a, a connection between the, the sacrifice and the presence of God, even in that. Verse 19, do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, he says. But the sacrifices of pagans in temples, he's saying, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. This is Paul's whole point, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants. I don't want you to be in communion with demons. You probably would know why as a Christian, like, don't, like, hang out with demons. Okay, that's, that's a good rule. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You can't have participation with Christ and participation with demons. And you cannot have part both in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything. Now, this is a goes back to the whole argument about rights. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a mill and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Am I referring to, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the mill with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Here's the point of everything. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all 
for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we, um, we need help this morning in dealing with this text. Um, I know that the, the, as we sit here in San Francisco as followers of Jesus, I know many of us are followers of Jesus, as we do that, Lord, there's so much nuance, there's so much gray area, there's so many things that, that we need to learn how to navigate in this city. Things to participate in, things not to participate in. Ways to contextualize the gospel and ways to be separate. And it's so hard at times to navigate these waters and we need your spirit to do so. So Holy Spirit, would you help us through this text? Would you teach us deeply? Would you form us? Would you shape us? And ultimately as we gather around the table of communion this morning, would you shape us into the image, the mindset, the heartbeat of Jesus Christ? In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Today, this morning, I want to talk about the nuance of the Christian faith. I want to talk about how things are not always black and white when it comes to the Christian faith. The conversation we just read in our text today started two chapters earlier, like I mentioned. It started by the church in Corinth asking a question about morality, asking a question about Christian ethics. Corinth was a lot like San Francisco. This city, this ancient city of Corinth, was a lot like San Francisco. It was a progressive city that was a a center of culture and activity. But this city of Corinth was also known for its moral laxity. There was actually a saying, to Corinthianize, or to live like a Corinthian, was to live a life of debauchery. On stage, when there were plays and a Corinthian would stumble on the stage, whenever a Corinthian was was, was portrayed in a play, that Corinthian would always be drunk. So there was something, there was a way that the world then saw the city of Corinth. And the beautiful thing was that there was a church right in the middle of Corinth. And Paul says, to the church in Corinth. That's how he starts his letter. To the church, there was a church in the middle of this city. And the reason why there was a a church in the middle of Corinth was because God was redeeming people in this city. And as God was redeeming people there came this question of how do I live in this city? How do I live in this city of Corinth as a follower of Jesus now? See, they weren't moving away. They came to follow Christ in the city. They weren't leaving. They weren't hiding for the conservative hills. They weren't going, oh my gosh, this city is so gross and so perverse, we're leaving. No, they lived in the city. They lived there. They worked there. They had relationships there. They were still, still a part of the culture of Corinth. They were part of that city. But as they remained immersed in the culture of Corinth, it became increasingly hard to identify with the culture of Corinth for the sake of the gospel, since they had friends and neighbors that they wanted to come to know Christ. It was hard for them to both identify with Corinth while keeping Christian distinction. How do we become, how do we identify with the culture as Christ identified when he came, but also remain distinct? How do we do that as followers of Jesus? We talked about that two weeks ago. Now, we too in this city deal with the same issue. We are both residents of San Francisco and residents of heaven. And how do we do both of those things? How do we live in San Francisco identifying with our neighbors and our coworkers, loving this city, but all the while remaining distinct as followers of Jesus? 
This is where nuance comes in. You and I must be nuanced in our approach. As we live our lives out for the kingdom of God, we must be nuanced. And this is where this all comes in. N.T. Wright wrote a book called Paul for Everyone. In that book, he writes this, quote, A Christian is called to live in a world where there are some great moral absolutes and some gray areas in between. There's great moral absolutes and there's gray areas. Problems arise not just when people get confused over which is which, but when people who like absolutes try to eliminate gray areas. And people who like gray areas, San Francisco, try to eliminate absolutes. Do you see that? There, is a, there are absolutes in the scriptures. There are absolutes in here, but there are a ton of gray areas in between. And some of you guys that love absolutes, you want to get rid of the gray areas, and you cannot get rid of the gray areas. But some of us, most of us in here that love the gray areas, we're like, what is really absolute? There are absolutes in here. There are things that you don't have to pray about, that are just simple, that you have to do. That you're like, what, should I, should I not? No, that's, that's an easy one. That's a moral absolute. We need absolutes in the Christian life, and we need gray areas. Paul builds the framework for absolutes and slushes around in the gray area by answering this topical question. Now, this was the question. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? And what we did was we put together a little, a little map for you to follow Paul's whole response. It's a big one, so let's see if you guys can follow along. So this is where Paul, Paul starts this in chapter 8, and he finishes here in chapter 10. And it starts by this. Can we eat? Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Can you guys see that? Everyone can see that? Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? That is the question. The answer is this. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Well, okay, that helps a lot. Thank you so much. Now, how do we know? So Paul says this. Paul says, let's build a framework so that you know when you go outside of that framework. And here's the framework. Love builds up and knowledge puffs up. That's the framework. Love builds up, knowledge puffs up. If you base everything on what you know, if you make your decisions based on knowledge and not on love, you've messed everything up. You've left the framework. Come back. Now he says this. True, an idol is nothing. That's knowledge. We all know that. And he repeats this again. An idol is nothing. But to the weak, to the weak person, an idol is something. Therefore, when you eat meat sacrificed to idols in the presence of a weak person, it stumbles them. That, that violates the law of love. Therefore, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols if it causes somebody to stumble. And then Paul goes on. Freedom. Your freedom in Christ leads to rights. This is chapter 8. Your freedom in Christ leads to rights, which is great. You guys have the right to do all of these things. Paul says this. Paul says, I have the right to bring a wife along when I, when I journey. I have the right to get paid for what I do. But you know what Christians do with their rights? Christians surrender their rights. And Paul says, actually, I surrender my rights because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus surrendered all of his rights. I surrender all of my rights for the sake of the gospel. Actually, I surrender everything. Though I'm free, I've made myself a slave to everyone for the sake of the gospel. I've laid down my rights and my freedoms for their sake. I've become all things to all people so that I might save someone. Now, this sort of life takes a lot of discipline and self-control. This life, when you're becoming all things to all people, takes a lot of discipline. It's like being in a race, and this race requires the discipline of an Olympian. You can't just live life any way you please as a follower of Jesus. You can't live life without any limits. You need limits. So here's a warning. Life without limits is dangerous. 
This is chapter 9. Just ask Israel, who thought they were good after being delivered through the Red Sea. They were baptized, he said. Who ate food from heaven. They ate spiritual food like communion. And they all fell dead in the wilderness. Well, most of them fell dead in the wilderness. Therefore, here's the point. Flee idolatry. And that's chapter 10. And then Paul goes into this. He says, temple feasts have the power of participation. When you're in the temple eating at, a, at the table with another demon, it's just, it's just like communion. Like communion, like what, what a communion meal does, you are becoming, almost like you're becoming one, you're participating with this demon. Therefore, do not participate in temple feasts. That is a hard rule. That is an absolute. Do not eat in the temple. Now let's revisit your rights again. Do you have the right to do anything? Yes. But no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So don't eat in temples. However, when you're in the meat market, eat whatever meat you want. It's all good. It's not the meat that's the problem. It's what happens when you get inside of a temple and are participating with demons. That's the problem. So if, is meat sacrificed to an idol a big deal? No, that's not a big deal at all. Why? Because God owns everything. That meat, that, that lamb belonged to God before it was sacrificed to an idol, and it belongs to God after it was sacrificed to an idol. That meat belongs to God. So here's the conclusion of everything. Whatever you do, do for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, and out of love for the other. That's how Paul answers the question. You're like, I'm never going to ask you a question again, Paul. <laughs> like, do you see how much nuance is in one, one, the answer to one question? Can we eat food sacrificed to an idol? Well, yes and no. Yes if this, no if that. Is it in the temple? Are you participating with demons? Then you can't participate with demons. That's an absolute. You cannot do it. Is it just meat sacrificed to an idol and it's sold in a meat market? Well, eat because it belongs to God. It's all God's. And when you just look at that route, you're like, that's, what, that's how much nuance is in the Christian faith. Nuance in the Christian faith happens when we understand moral, the moral absolutes of Scripture and use them to build a framework so that we can move around in all the gray areas. Nuance, let me, let me read this again. Nuance in the Christian faith, faith happens when we understand the moral absolutes of the Scriptures and use those moral absolutes to build a framework so that we can move around in all the gray areas. Nuance is this. What are the absolutes and let's use the absolutes to build a framework and then allow us to move around inside these absolutes. Allow us to improvise, as you will, inside of these absolutes. And there are, once we build a moral framework, once we build the absolutes, there are a lot of gray areas that remain in the Christian faith today. You might not think they're gray, but they're gray. They might not be gray here in the city, but they are gray. Things like music. What kind of music can a Christian listen to? My friend says, um, uh, only Christian music, or are you allowed to listen to good music? Um, <laughs> he said that, not me. So, I mean, what, what, what's the limit? What are you allowed to listen to as a Christian when it comes to music? This, for some people, is a gray area. For other people, it's not. Film. What kind of film can you watch? What kind of movies are you allowed to go, go to? Are you only allowed to see PG movies or PG-13 or R or does it go after R? Like what? It depends on what one's, like how do you know? That's a, that's a gray area. Alcohol is a gray area. Clothing is a gray area. Some cultures don't wear any clothing. 
Some cultures only wear certain clothing. Clothing is a gray area. Politics. Am I supposed to be a Republican as a Christian or a Democrat as a Christian or independent as a Christian? Or do I just vote whatever I want to? How do I vote? What kind of politics do I have as a Christian? Yoga is a gray area. We talked about this like three weeks ago. Some people go, do you know where yoga comes from? Do you know it's demonic influence and there's people that stretch for Jesus, right? Like you go out and you're just like stretching for Christ and like ohm for Lord, the Lord, you know, that sort of thing. And, it's a, and for a lot of people, it's a gray area. Tobacco is a gray area. Can you smoke? And what happens when marijuana is legalized? That will be a very gray area <laughs> for other reasons. If, not, not when, if it's legalized, by the way. Don't read that politically at all, by the way. Um, there's a lot of gray areas in the Christian life. There's a lot of gray areas as you navigate your life as a follower of Christ in this city. There are. Now, the, 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 the thing that a lot of churches and pastors love to do is to draw strict, hard lines around all the gray areas. And to point back to what N.T. Wright says, there are some people who, like absolutes, try to eliminate gray areas. We cannot eliminate the gray areas. Those areas are gray. But we can't, for those of us who love gray areas, gray areas try to eliminate absolutes. There are actually absolutes that bind us around what music we can listen to and what films we can watch and alcohol. There are absolutes around those areas. And for the followers of Jesus, we must establish those moral absolutes and then flex around all of those areas. Allow me to illustrate this. This here is John Coltrane. And someone says, amen. Did you guys listen to, okay, during the four minutes, did you guys, anyone pick up on the music that was being played? A couple of you guys did. So if you guys were moving to it, like Love Supreme, right? Okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just listen. This album is probably one of the greatest jazz albums of all time, okay? Greatest selling, probably one of the greatest jazz, jazz albums of all time. John Coltrane also played saxophone on the best selling jazz album of all time, Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. Both of these albums wonderfully explored and are masterpieces in improvisational jazz. Now the beauty of this style of jazz, the beauty of the style of, 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 of jazz is complete improv. Improvisational jazz is about feeling, it's about mood, it's about mode, it's about preference to the other musicians in the band. It's when to play low so the stand-up basics can do his solo because his instrument's really low. It's when to pick up, it's when to hold your note so that the uh, that musician that's soloing can play his thing. It's about an ensemble in community, it's about trust. Instrumentalists play improvisationally, but the improvisation occurs within a framework. And that's where the music happens. The music of improvisational jazz happens in the gray area. Improvisational jazz is beautiful in the nuance. Because the band has the freedom to flex. The band has the freedom to move. But the freedom to flex and move always occurs within a framework. This album here, A Love Supreme, is a beautiful 33-minute journey that starts with a four-note bass line that occurs at the very beginning of the album when Coltrane's saxophone opens up. It's in the back. It goes something like boom, 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 boom. Did you guys hear it? Of course, it's kind of in your head. It might be in your head if you heard it. Boom, 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 boom. It's like that. I'm sorry, I'm not really good at 
using my voice for music, anything other than talking, but I'll, bear with me, I'm, I'm hoping to make a point. That simple riff becomes the musical framework for the, for the entire album, for the rich improvisations that happen throughout the, the whole album. But this album, there was even deeper framework than simply that four-part bass line. That four-part bass line was actually a verbal chant. A verbal chant goes back to the beginning, the genesis of jazz music. See, when jazz was being born, when jazz was being formed in New Orleans after the Civil War, it was formed out of blues. And a blues guitarist or a blues player would play the blues and he would sing and he would use his voice to hold notes in his voice and to shake notes out in his voice and his voice became an instrument of singing the blues. After the Civil War, when all these guys were, were released from war, they had their horns still. And in the Civil War, you would use your horns to sound a charge, like that sort of thing. That was a really good one, I think. Um, <laughs> And, they, and then they would take, and they would, these guys would be playing the blues, and they'd be around blues, and they would use their horn then to mimic the sound of the voice. And this deepened the blues. This is where jazz was born. When in blues you sang, and you held notes, and you would shake out notes, musicians would start doing this with their horns. And this is how jazz music was forged. It was deeper meaning to the words through music. So the framework of John Coltrane's whole album was this verbal chant that took the form of a four-part bass line. But then, in the first song, song acknowledgement, Coltrane's more or less finished with his improvisation. Towards the end of the song, he starts playing the motif, this four-part bass line, this boom, 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 with a saxophone. But he changes the key. And then he changes the key again. But he's playing the same thing in a different key over and over and over again. And this is something very unusual, even for improvisational jazz. It's not the way he usually improvises. And if you actually follow it through, he ends up playing this little motif theme in all 12 possible keys. And what's the motif? Well, the band will sing it towards the end of the song. They all sing together a love supreme. Lewis Porter, the author of John Coltrane, his life in music says this. To me... He's given you a message here. First of all, he's introduced the idea. He's experimented with it. He's improvised with it with great intensity. He's saying it's everywhere. It's in all 12 keys. It's everywhere you look. You're going to find this. Love supreme. Isn't that so cool? He says it's everywhere. John Coltrane, through his song, through improvisational jazz, saying, listen, the the framework is not just this four-part bass line. This framework is actually a love supreme that's in everything. And so he writes in his, in his liner notes inside, right in here, he writes this. Dear listener, all praise be to God to whom all praise is due. Let us pursue him in the righteous path. Yes, let, it is true. Seek and ye shall find. Only through him can we know the most wonderful, wondrous bequeathal. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was led to me, led me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel that this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. As time and events moved on, a period of irresolution did prevail. I had entered into a phrase which was contradictory to the pledge and away from the esteemed path. But thankfully, now and again, through the unerring and merciful hand of God, I do perceive and now have been duly informed of his omnipotence. 
and of our need for and dependence on him. At this time, I would like to tell you that no matter what, it is with God. He is gracious and merciful. His way is in love, through which we all are. It is truly a love supreme. So what was Coltrane saying through his music? The framework of his improvisation in his music was, was the same in his, actually in his entire life. And that's what he, he wrote in his, in his notes. It was a love supreme. That was the framework. That was the framework of his music. That was the framework of his life. Paul is saying a similar thing than Coltrane was saying. Paul is saying that there is a framework in Christian ethics. There is a framework that we must not go beyond. But inside this framework, we make music. Inside this framework, it's beautiful. Inside this framework, there's preference. Inside this this framework, there's sacrifice. Inside this framework, there's denying myself. Inside this framework, there's enjoying the good of God. Inside of this framework, we can be followers of Jesus that both enjoy the beauty of San Francisco, but lay our lives down for its service. But we have to understand this framework, and this framework is love. And this is what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says this, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It's not about what you know, Christian. It's about if you're going to love. The climax of the entire letter is in 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul says, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels but do not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and knowledge and have the faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And he concludes, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And this love is not a disconnected love. Paul says in chapter 13 that we can say we have love, but that doesn't mean a thing. Paul will give love absolutes so that we can move within its framework. And the absolutes of love for Paul are this. Love is displayed through the cross of Christ, and love is practiced in the community of Christ. It's displayed to us through the cross of Christ and it's practiced in the community of Christ. You can't have love outside of this. The reason why it's displayed through the cross, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because we need models. We need models who are looking to Christ and are modeling, modeling a life of sacrifice and nuance, holding to love and truth with intensity for the sake of the gospel. Some of us grew up around great models, Therefore, be a model yourself. Some of us didn't have models, or at least not good ones. And that's why we need community. That's why we need to join. If you're not in a community or a community group, join a community group. Live your life as a follower of Jesus in community. There is no life as a follower of Jesus outside of robust Christian community. All of that is assumed in here. But the ultimate model is Jesus himself. Followers of Jesus are to live a Christ-formed life. And this is why we go to the table of communion. Around that table of communion, we are shaped and we are formed. There is something mysterious that happens around the table of communion where we participate and take in the life of Christ. We die, more, we die and more of Christ comes alive in us. And what is this life? It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life not lived for the self. It's a life seeking the good of others over ourselves. And this is why it has to be practiced in community. This is how Paul answers the question of meat sacrificed to idols inside the framework of love. He answers it like this, yes, but, and no, but. Can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? 
Can I listen to music that I like? Can I? Yes, but. No, but. Yes, but you can't eat in temples. Now, it's very interesting to me that Paul draws an absolute line here. Paul says, in temples you cannot eat. That's absolute. Why can't I eat in a temple? Because there's this unity that happens with your body and the body of a demon when you eat in a temple. That's Paul's exact same argument in chapter 6. Can I sleep with whoever I want to? No, you can't sleep with whoever you want to. Why not? Because you join your body with their body. Therefore, it's an absolute. Flee sexual immorality. What's the other absolute? Idolatry. Flee idolatry. Now, is there gray areas around dating and around, like, finding a spouse and around being attracted to people? Yeah, there's a lot of gray area. But here's an absolute. Don't be one with a demon and don't be, some, don't be one with someone who's not your spouse. Absolutes. Now, you might not like that. Those are the absolutes. There's a lot of music that happens in between those, though. The next one is beware of idolatry. And lastly, put others before yourself. So yes, but no temples. Yes, but beware of idolatry. Yes, but be, put others before yourself. And he also answers, well, no, but. So he gives a little bit, he gives warning before, but here he gives a warrant. No, you can't eat food sacrificed to idols, but the earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. So before you look at wine and go, ooh, that's so bad, that's so wrong. Oh, wait, no, that actually is a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. And the notes in it and the, and, the, and the taste, there's some parts of it that are beautiful and good. And the earth is the Lord's and he created that. And Jesus turned water into wine. And it was real wine. It was non-alcoholic wine. It wasn't like, you know, whatever, like grape juice. It was wine. And people were like, dang, this is good wine. Really good wine. Like, who, where'd, you, where'd you get this wine? He's like, you know, my father. All things, yes, no, you cannot eat food sacrificed to idols, but do all things to win some people. So sometimes you're going to be invited over someone's house. I love how Paul assumes that Christians in Corinth are so connected to people, to their friends in Corinth, that they get invited over their homes for a meal. Paul says, and when someone invites you over for a meal, a Gentile, uh, not a Gentile, but a person who's not a Christian, gets, invites you over for a meal, don't ask what's being served. Don't like, hey, is this meat sacrificed to an idol or not? Like, what's going on here? Because you know I'm a Christian. Don't do that. Just go in and like, they'll bring out the food and like, thank, and he goes, just thank God for the food. You don't have to stop and go, God bless this food, kind of what I'm going to eat right now. Like, make it clean. He's like, it's already clean. And it's clean because God owns the earth. The earth is the Lord. So enjoy food. Go over to the house and ask questions. But there might be someone in there, and we don't know if it's like a non-Christian or a Christian, but someone in there goes, okay, we don't, don't, don't eat that. That's a sacrifice to an idol. At that point, Paul says, okay, listen, then don't do it because you don't want to stumble that person. That goes back to what I, how I started this whole conversation. There's a lot of Again, a lot of nuance. Do everything for the sake of winning people and do everything for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. That means let us study the sciences and let us enjoy good drink and good food as long as we do it to bring glory to God. All of these things are terribly and beautifully nuanced. It's like with the issue of sexuality. There has been a narrative in the church that says homosexuals are going to hell. Is that true? No. Are you kidding me? Having a certain sexual attraction does not get you into heaven. But can people with same-sex attraction do whatever they want? No. No one can. 
Not straight, not gay, not bi, it doesn't matter. There's a warrant and there's a warning because as followers of Jesus, we are bound to something greater. So what's the black and white soundbite answer that comes in 140 characters about sexuality, specifically homosexuality? There isn't one. There isn't one. And I've been asked for that, that statement. Well, what's the answer? How, how long do you have? The answer is long, and the answer is nuanced. There are some absolutes, 1 Corinthians 6, and there are some gray areas, 1 Corinthians 10. Normally those things are too, normally, and normally the gray areas are too uh, conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. If you're in here and you're a liberal, like, liberal, like that's, that's way too conservative for me. And if you're conservative, like, well, that's way too liberal for me. Well, that's how you know it's other. That's how you know it's like from God and not from what you made up. It might sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth on this issue. And that's probably what it seemed like to Corinth on the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. Richard B. Hayes writes, Paul's position on meat sacrifice to idols is a delicate balancing act because Paul's position does not fit precisely into either of the opposing positions in the Corinthian debate. It is easy to see how each side might accuse him of inconsistency or lack of moral courage. Nevertheless, his position is a coherent one, however difficult it might be to put into practice in a community. What I, I love is to bring coherency is a difficult thing to achieve. We're not all the Apostle Paul. We're not all as smart as the Apostle Paul. But I think we should try to put together, how do we coherently put together the, the nuance of issues that pertain to our city and following Jesus. And Paul's whole point of this whole section is Paul is moving the church from an anthropocentricity to a theopocentricity. He wants them not to be theo, to be anthropocentric, not to be centered on themselves, not to be all about themselves, but the whole point is to be centered around God and fueled for God and life with God because life is not about you. Life is about God. It's about his glory, and God gets great glory in us enjoying food that he made, drink, community. He gets great glory in giving us, in making us servants for others, people repenting and coming into his kingdom. He gets great glory out of all of these things. And this is how Paul will end his discussion. Paul ends his whole discussion like this. So whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that may, they may be saved. Follow my example as I followed the example of Christ. So a question to ask yourself as you are living in the nuance of the Christian faith is this. Does your action bring glory to God? Does the action that you're doing bring glory to God? Does it contradict the Christian story? Are you saying no to something that God has made good? Are you saying yes to something that God said no to? Are you living into the Christian story? Do you realize that you belong to Christ and are you joining your life with something that's contradictory to, to the way of Christ? Are you sacrificing for the sake of others? Does your action bring glory to God? Another question to ask is, are your actions building up the community of God? Is it all around this framework of love? Are you causing 
someone who's weak to stumble? Are you seeking the good of others? Are you making this decision because it's all about you? Are you making it out of self-sacrifice for the other? Are your actions, another question is, are your actions getting the gospel out? Are you living your life in such a way that the gospel is going out? What are you saying about the Christian story through your life? Because I want you to attest to the fact that there are great things that God has made that you and I can enjoy. But we lay those things down for the sake of others as well. And that is where all the beautiful improvisation, nuance, and music happens. And lastly, are your actions worth copying? This one's the most convicting one, I think. I think. This one's hard. Are your actions worth copying? Can you say in your actions, follow me as I follow the example of Christ? Would you, would you be so bold? Paul's pretty bold. He's like, hey guys, just do what I do because I'm doing what Christ is doing. I mean, that's a bold thing to say. Could you, could you go, hey, follow my actions the way I try to navigate all the issues in, in the city and all the issues of, of, of life and romance and marriage and money and power and influence and independence, which is our biggest idol, I think, in San Francisco. How do I navigate all of that? And guys, follow me as I follow Christ. Church, our lives are to be patterned after the gospel. Christ giving his life for us. And when we do that, when you and I live a life in the framework of love as shown through the cross and demonstrated through community, as you and I live, live with these, this framework, the things that we'll be able to accomplish, the beauty, the art, and the music that you and I will be able to make as we prefer each other and enjoy the good of God in this city is going to be an amazing thing. Guys, I don't, I don't, and when we first started this church, I said, I'm not trying to build a self-righteous church. I'm not trying to find, I'm not trying to build a self-independent church either. What we're trying to build together in this church is one who enjoys the good of God because everything you do, whether you eat today or drink, do it all for God's glory. Some of us need to like chill out a little bit and enjoy the good of God. And some of us, we've enjoyed the good of God enough, I think. A little too much, maybe. And you need to, I, I need to, I need to self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And Paul's whole thing, follow me as I follow, as I imitate Christ. This is how we imitate Christ. Paul says explicitly in Philippians. In your relationships with one another, this has to do with each other. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What Paul is saying here is Paul is echoing what happened in the Garden of Eden. There was, an, there was Adam and Eve who grasped trying to be like God, and they fell. And here's Jesus, who was God, but didn't grasp for it. And he actually self-sacrificed, and he was exalted. There is a way that you guys can live where you're grasping for self, and you're grasping, you're grasping, you're grasping, where you can, you can make yourself nothing. You can take an approach that says, I'm going, to sell, I'm going to serve the other. I'm going to do everything. Every decision I make is to be for the other. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a, as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that, that this faith, this Christian faith is a beautiful thing. It is so liberating. It is so beautiful. It is so invigorating to be a child of God and be a follower of Jesus. That we can walk right out of these doors and enjoy the good uh, that you have created. If there's sun out there, we don't know. Only you know. If there's sun out there, God, today, we can enjoy that for the glory of God. The food and, 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 the, and the things that happen in this city and around this area, we can enjoy them. But, Lord, they're not an in and of themselves. For your glory, we might have to lay down some of our rights, preferring the other. God, would you teach us how to do this in our community groups? I just pray for all our community groups that are going to be gathering this, this week to discuss this. I pray that you would show us how to, how to live this life together. Lord, not, not in a cheesy way, but that you would make us that sort of, um, that sort of jazz ensemble that knows the framework and is able to play beautifully together. Make us like that, God. Help us to make beautiful music in the city for the glory of God. Do that in us, Lord. And if, if there's anyone in, Lord, here that we've just gone away from the path. We've strayed from that path. We've, we've sought a, the, 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 the good that you've created for, for ourselves and not for your glory. We repent, God. And we turn. We've made food an idol, whether in gluttony or in rejection of it. We made image an idol or a job an idol or something an idol. God, would you cast those idols down now? And may Jesus, I pray that you would be the object of our worship, the object of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.